0: Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is going to be a book review of a novel, the novel The Star Rover by Jack London. And I really love this book. I've got some thoughts about it. I've also got some great photos in this Book review that i put together so you're going to want to go and check out those photos i will link below wherever you're listening to this podcast to that book review so you can check out the the photos the imagery that goes along with this it's often said that the best books are old books having just finished the novel The Star Rover, published in 1915, I'm a bit more convinced of this. Authors of ages past spoke frankly and with some damn common sense about things that get modern authors totally excluded from the literary mainstream for talking about something this beautifully written and compelling tale is a sensational example of here's the premise of the book this very educated and sophisticated guy daryl standing is a prisoner on death row in a brutal and dreary california prison the petty and vindictive prison warden keeps punishing him by putting him in a tortuous straitjacket. While the life is constricted out of him by the jacket, he goes on marvelous metaphysical journeys through time and space to his past lives as a Roman legionary, a pioneer in the wild west as a maritime explorer, a frenchman, a shipwrecked sailor, an egyptian and other human experiences throughout the epochs. And then I've got a cool photo of him here. Uh, the author loved life at the sea, life upon the sea. He was a uh, a yachtsman, I believe, and there's a photo of him with his wife who had a really funny name. So, one of the themes of the book is the virtue of white men. I don't get the impression that Jack London had a lot of white guilt. In every life the protagonist storied, he is a heroic white European man. He's never an enslaved African or a victimized woman moping around feeling sorry for himself. And he speaks of the Faustian European spirit. Quote The white man has gone around the world in mastery, I do believe, because of his unwise, uncaringness. That has been the manner of his going. Although, of course, he was driven on by restlessness and lust for beauty, or lust for booty. (laughs) Lust for booty? lust for booty. Really? That's what drives the That's what drives this white man forward at least. Okay. Lust for booty. Lust for booty is what drives the white man. We figured it out, folks. Okay. He also mentions a rather controversial narrative about Egypt which modern archaeology is increasingly confirming that the builders of the pyramids and timeless monuments of Egypt were of European extraction, not North Africans. In the book, he says, I have been an Aryan master in old Egypt when my soldiers scrawled obscenities on the craven tombs of kings dead and gone and forgotten, Time. And I, the Aryan master in old Egypt, have myself builded my two burial places, the one a false and mighty pyramid to which a generation of slaves could attest. Next red pill subject of the book is that the state, the government, is violence. And this is one of the points that the book really drives home. Quote, I have endured eight years of their torment and now in the end failing to get rid of me in all other ways they have invoked the machinery of the state to put a rope around my neck and shut off my breath by the weight of my body. He makes the uncomfortable point that us, the citizens, are complicit in the state's brutality. And yet the state, which includes all the citizens of the state, believes that it can blot out this wisdom of mine in the final dark by means of a rope about my neck and the abruptive jerk of gravitation. We like to blame politicians or the military-industrial complex, or come up with conspiracy theories about the violence of the state. But the truth is that the citizenry has a degree of responsibility for the brutality and injustice perpetrated by the state. Next theme of the book is that California is a shithole. Even back in... 1915, California was a pretty unjust place rife with political corruption. Quote, Oh no, California is civilized. There is no such law on the statute books. It is a cruel and unusual punishment and no modern state would be guilty of such a law. Nevertheless, in the history of California, I am the third man who has been condemned for life to solitary confinement. It required the state law of California, a hanging judge and an unpardoning governor, to send me to the scaffold for striking a prison guard with my fist. I shall always contend that the guard had a nose that was most easily bleedable. On fake news, at one point, the prison where he and the other prisoners are regularly tortured is the subject of an investigation. But the auditors are corrupt and the San Francisco newspaper falsely reports that the prison treats all its residents humanely from the book. Alas, no whisper of what I divulged ever went outside the prison walls. The Senate committee gave a beautiful whitewash to Warden Atherton and San Quentin. That's his prison. The crusading San Francisco newspaper assured its working class readers that San Quentin was whiter than snow and further that while it was true, that the straitjacket was still a recognized legal method of punishment for the refractory that nevertheless at the present time under the present humane and spiritually right-minded warden the straitjacket was never under any circumstances used and while the poor asses of laborers read and believed while the Senate committee dined and wined with the warden at the expense of the state and the taxpayer. So he's talking about how the the fake news covered up the, uh, the dishumane, inhumane treatment going on there. Next in the book, he also talks about the farce of civic nationalism in One chapter, he is a Roman centurion of Northern European extraction serving in Palestine who witnesses the crucifixion uh, and the sentencing of Christ. And he says, I am a Roman. But he's, he's not actually a Roman. He's a Northern European. So he says, I am a Roman. I said slowly. Knowing full well that the words I gave up all hope to her, and she responded, "You are a man-slave of Tiberius, a hound of Rome. She flamed, but you owe Rome nothing. you are not a Roman. You yellow giants of the north are not Romans. The Romans are the elder brothers of us younglings of the north. I answered also i swear the harness and i eat the bread of rome in this chapter he also describes something that historians detail as as a contributing factor in the decline of the roman empire which was the disloyalty and general unreliability of the auxiliary roman battalions filled with Barbarians serving Rome just for silver. You can go and check out, there was a really excellent presentation that Stefan Molyneux did on the decline of the Roman Empire. And then there was a Dan Carlin podcast that was really great where he was went through, gosh, it must've took about 10 hours to get through this podcast, talking about all the different contributing factors of the decline of the Roman Empire. The next subject that the book discusses is the Jews. In the current year, this book would be banned for hate speech against Jews, most certainly. That's what he said. That's what he says here. The Jews had got on his nerves. They were too volcanic, spasmodic, eruptive, and further They were subtle. The Romans had a straight, forthright way of going about everything. The Jews never approached anything directly, save backwards, when they were driven by compulsion. Left to themselves, they always approached by indirection. Rome did not interfere with the religious notions of its conquered peoples, but the jews were ever confusing the issues and giving a political cast to purely unpolitical events and those are the author's words not mine i'm just just quoting <laughs> okay he also was not a great fan of mormons the book features a vignette from a little known historical event america's forgotten First civil war with the mormons which is also which is often called the utah war it's yet another historical example of just a little bit of religious diversity causing bloodshed and war quote my father regarded me quizzically don't like the mormons eh, son i shook my head and felt myself swelling with the inarticulate hate that possessed me. When I grow up, I said, after a moment, I'm going gunning for him. Next topic that he was red-pilled on was women. In 2019, Jack London would certainly be pilloried and demonized as a vile misogynist. Quote, The eternal lesson in all lives that woman is ever woman that in great and decisive moments woman does not reason but feels that the last sanctuary and the innermost pulse to conduct is in woman's heart and not in woman's head jack london wrote another novel martin eden which you read Mm -hmm. That is really about himself, which it's kind of a semi-audiobiographical novel, one of those. And it stories a lot of blue pill, quote-unquote blue pill behavior, and futile appeasing of women. Like so many men, it sounds like Jack London had to learn the hard way about Women. But throughout the book's 270 pages, he praises the redeeming features of the fairer sex and points out that the love of women has no equal as a motivator of greatness, endeavor, and invention. Here's what he said I conclude that the greatest thing in life, in all lives, To me and to all men has been women, is women, and will be women so long as the stars drift in the sky and the heavens flux eternal change. Greater than our toil and endeavor, the play of invention and fancy, battle and stargazing and mystery, greatest of all has been woman sometimes I think that the story of man is the story of the love of woman. That's a great line, isn't it? Probably our favorite line Mm -hmm, from the book, mm -hmm. right? And I actually created a meme of that. I created a meme with Jack London that says, sometimes I think that the story of man is the story of the love of woman. So you can find that meme in my book review and share it around and you'll probably get a lot of likes from women for that meme next topic it covers is reincarnation a lot of interpretations of this book that you can find online say that the book is about reincarnation that the protagonist is sharing his past lives and experiences with us however Upon careful reading of the book, I actually think that's incorrect. I don't think that the book is about reincarnation. The word reincarnation never even appears in the book. I did a cross-reference with my Kindle software, and it's not in there. Several passages suggest that he is recounting experiences as a universal Man, that he is part of this chain of life and is metaphysically connecting with experiences of past men while his body is being tortured in the jacket. Quote from the book I am life. I am the unquenched spark, ever flashing and astonishing the face of time, ever working my will and wrecking my passion on the cloddy aggregates of matter called bodies, which I have transiently inhabited. Ooh, that, that passage there just gives me tingles. And this brings me to the genetic memory thesis. Maybe you've heard of this before. I think that Jack London may have been woke to and writing about the phenomena of genetic memory. There are numerous examples of us being born knowing things that we have never been taught, sometimes quite specific skill sets and elaborate knowledge sets. It stands to reason that we could be born with genetic knowledge of our ancestors' specific experiences. Indeed, this could account for a lot of supposed cases of reincarnation where a young child has accurate memories of some person that lived years before they were born. Scientists and philosophers have hypothesized that our junk DNA is not junk, that the junk is encoded memories from our genetic past lives. That's a stimulating idea, isn't it? In the book, he says something very interesting about human hibernation. Quote, The far northern Siberian peasants made a practice of hibernating through the long winters just as bears and other wild animals do. Some scientists studied these peasants and found that during these periods of the long sleep, respiration and digestion practically ceased. And... I've got a picture of some Siberian peasants from a long time ago, and they look, like, they look like rather unhappy folks. They look like they lived a hard life. So I was kind of stimulated by that. And I was like, really, do, do, do Siberians hibernate during the winter? So I did some researching and I found an old scientific paper about hibernating Siberians. Quote, 100 years ago, human hibernation. And here's what it says. This custom has existed among them from time immemorial. At the first fall of snow, the whole family gathers around the stove, lies down, ceases to wrestle with the problems of human existence, and quietly goes to sleep. Once a day, everyone wakes up to eat a piece of hard bread, of which an amount sufficient to last six months has providently been baked in the previous autumn. When the bread has been washed down with a drought of water, everyone goes to sleep again. The members of the family take it in turn to watch and keep the fire alight. After six months of this reposeful existence, the family wakes up, shakes itself, goes out to see if the grass is growing, and by the by, sits to work at summer tasks. And the winter sleep is called the Lotzka. So I'm not sure if we have evidence that they were actually hibernating exactly the way that bears did. But it's a it's an interesting practice and you can see how it would totally make sense in some place like Siberia, which can get as cold as the surface of the moon. Actually, sometimes during their winter. Finally, interesting thing. In the book, he describes his metaphysical state as a cataleptic cataleptic trance. And according to Wikipedia, this is a real thing. Quote, catalepsy is a nervous condition characterized by muscular rigidity and fixity of posture, regardless of external stimuli, as well as decreased sensitivity to pain. And I will add just a final vignette from the book that was striking to me. There's a scene in the book where he's like a caveman, where he is a, uh, an ancient, ancient human, probably lived hundreds of thousands of years ago. And they have these wild creatures that are in their vicinity. They have these wild, wild creatures that run on four legs. And these are horses, of course. And so one day there's a guy and his brother. And his brother is kind of a crazy guy. And his brother says, I got I got a really fun idea. You know, they're teenagers. So they're coming up with crazy things to do to pass the time, take a risk, you know. And so his brother says, you know, go and try to get the horses to go over by this rock. And then I'm going to hide behind the bush and then I'm going to jump on top of one of the horses and maybe I can ride the horse and it'll take me someplace. And he tells his brother, he's like. No, 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 no. That's that's a bad idea. Don't 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 do that. Don't mess with the horses. And he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And he's like, OK, OK, OK. You know, go up there and then jump off the rock and try to get on the horse. And so his brother goes and does it. But of course, this is like a wild stallion. So the horse rockets off and the brother is on the horse, but the brother gets thrown off of the horse and the, the first man ever to ride a horse gets thrown off of it and cracks his head and dies. And of course, he's very, very sad. And he goes back to his caveman tribe and says, oh, it's so terrible. My brother died because he was trying to ride one of those crazy giant thundering animals. And so everybody in the tribe says, oh, my God, that's that's terrible. Don't don't do that. Let's let's not do that. And so the tribe bans the attempted riding of horses. The tribe says riding horses is just ridiculous. A guy died once trying to do it, so nobody will ever do it again. And it becomes a, a tribal. It becomes a a, a, a tribal you know uh, edict. But then years and years later, the caveman has I believe a son. And I believe he names his son the same as his dead brother, as as you do. You know, that's the sort of thing people do, right? And so his son grows up with the name of the man that attempted to ride the horse and then died. And then his whole culture is telling him not to ride the horses, right? So, of course, what does his son do? His son goes and jumps on a horse and manages to ride a horse and manages to tame the horse and then the tribe becomes the tribe of humans that have mastered the natural world a little bit more and of course this is incredibly advantageous to them so I thought that that particular vignette was a really beautiful picture of how the the rebellion against custom the rebellion against fear is sometimes what what civilization and progress flowers out of again it was a beautiful book i really enjoyed reading it i didn't even come close to sharing with you in this podcast all the cool little stories and adventures that are in it so go check it out if you're curious again it is the star rover by jack london And I am Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, looking forward to a continued conversation with you.